0: And Tonight, we're going to be looking at uh, the period from the end of the Southern Exile up to the time of Christ. And This is a very interesting period of time, which most of us know very little about. I would say even in preparing for this, this course, this would be the period I was the most obtuse on myself, because we just generally don't think about it or talk about it. But there's actually some interesting things that take place between the decree of Cyrus for the judeans to go back to judah and the the coming of christ including a mini kingship that arose in judah so what i would like to do i would like to uh set up our our um our discussion of life in judah during the post-exilic period by talking about the broader cultural and geopolitical context that they were in so um As you heard last week, the Persians were the next big empire to take over from who? Okay, so the Northern Kingdom. Let's set it up this way. The Northern Kingdom. Who was the world power when they were taken from Samaria in 722? Okay, so... um, Correct. I need my eraser here. So 722 is the date that we put on the Assyrian captivity. So Assyria was like the, uh, the USA of the world during that period of time. The superpower, right? And then the southern kingdom, when they were taken in 586 B.C., we have the ruling power being Babylon. Who's next? Persia, Persia, exactly. So in around 539, 540, 539, things change again. So this is first, second, third. And it's the, the kingdom of Persia. Or sometimes it's called the Medes and the Persians. Okay, the reason for that is because the Medes were a significant people group within Persia. And some of the kings, I believe, even of Persia were actually, I don't know whether you'd call them Medianites, but they were Medes by background. Just to uh, outline this for the sake of the rest of our conversation, what was the the kingdom that came after Persia? Okay, the Greeks, right? Okay, so the Greeks. So when we use the word Hellenism, we're not talking about heaven or hell. We're talking about Greekification. So Hellenism is Greekification. And then after the Greeks, who? Okay, then Rome, up to the time of Christ. So this is very helpful to to understand when you're reading through the Old Testament and when you're trying to understand the messages of the different prophetic figures in the book. So what I wanted to do is, let's focus in on the the Persians. So you'll have a bit of an idea here. This is Persepolis, the capital of Persia. And notice that they were able to make headway right up into Europe. So they took over what we call the Fertile Crescent. They also ruled Egypt for most of the time that the Persian Empire was, was uh, the superpower of the world, so that whoever the king of Persia was, was also by default the pharaoh of Egypt. So not all the pharaohs of Egypt were Egyptian. They were sometimes Persian, uh, sometimes in a sense Babylonian, and later Greek. But, um, so they're taking over most of Asia Minor, the Fertile Crescent, down into India, into the Indus Valley, and of course all through the land that we're studying, which is Israel, modern-day Israel. So pretty significant empire. And the the, uh, the difference between the Babylonians, so there's Babylon, by the way, there's Assyria. The difference between the Babylonians and the Persians is that whereas the Babylonians wanted to take the cream of the crop out of the countries they had captured and take them back so that they could benefit from their services in the courts, the Persians had a more of a do-what-you-want kind of policy. They would disperse the people back to their home countries if they wanted to, or they could stay. If they wanted to stay in Babylon, they could stay in Babylon. So we'll learn later that Nehemiah did not return the first time he came back to Judah until 93 years after Cyrus's decree. So sometimes you're reading through the Bible, you almost think, you know the decree went out, and all of a sudden Ezra and Nehemiah are there. They weren't even born at the time. Uh, Nehemiah did not come to, to Judea as the governor until 93, around 92, 93 years after Cyrus's decree, which allowed the people to go. So that says a lot of the nobility of Judah stayed in Babylon. For centuries, in fact, for for over a millennia. What does that mean? Oh, okay. Okay. Well, I'm starting to see red here, Otto. Pardon the pun, right? (laughs) Oh, it's unplugged. Yeah, there we go. (laughs) Thanks, Otto. Thanks for saving me. All right. So what I want to do, I want to introduce you to the list of Persian kings. And then we're going to do a little exercise in the Old Testament, which will help us to see what periods of time the Jewish people were talking about during different biblical events. Yes, this is our little cottage. Okay. Chris built this for me, but he didn't build it light. <laughs> okay. All right. So let me write some names up here. Now, some of this is, is probably not information you're ever going to remember, but you should remember some of the key names on this list because you're going to find them in the Bible. So here's the Persian king lists. Uh, the first Persian king that we encounter is Cyrus. And he is the one, just keep this in mind, that issues the decree about one year after he captures Babylon. If the Jews want to go back to Jerusalem, they can go back to Jerusalem. He is still their king, by the way, because the way he set it up is he set up a series of satraps, so they were called satrapsies, kind of like super governors, and each satrap had a see that he would oversee on behalf of the Persian king. So it wasn't go back to Judah and do your own thing. No, you're going to go back to Judah. I'm still your king. But he's going to give them a measure of religious and political freedom. So these are the dates, not of their birth and death, otherwise they'd be dying really young. But these are the dates of their reign. So 559 to 530. What year is the decree issued? 539. 539. 538 or 539, it depends on how we apply our calendar to their calendar, because they're obviously not using the same calendar as us. Then, after him, Cambyses II. And he reigns from 530 to 522. What you will see is a recycling of names in this king list. Then Bardia. Now this guy only reigns for a fraction of a year. I can't remember if it's a few months or a few weeks, but it's very brief. Some of them are. Some of them are as a result of assassinations of previous kings and new households taking over. Yeah. Then we have Darius. Sound familiar? Okay, his name's in the Bible. We'll star the names that we're finding in the Bible. Okay, Darius I. And he reigns from 522, quite a long time, to 486. It's during his reign that the second temple is rebuilt in 516 BC. And then you might recall this fellow... Xerxes. What do we know about Xerxes? Right. He becomes, or Esther becomes his wife. Now, in the biblical text, so that you're not confused, his name is also... I just want to spell it right here, which I've already failed to do. Now, uh, I'm not sure what language this comes from, but in a certain language, these both have the same root. They're actually, they look entirely different in English, but in a certain language, probably the Persian language, they have the same root. So it's actually considered the same name. It's not two different names, but it's actually considered the same name. But in Ezra chapter 4, verse 6, you see Asuarius referred to. But that's actually Xerxes I. And then, real creative... Throw a few letters on the beginning, and you have Artaxerxes, and he reigns from 480, no, 465 to uh, 424. Now, um, <clears throat> the next king, uh, I'm not going to write all these up on the board because these are the ones we're going to focus in on but you can write these down if you'd like. I'll just mention them orally. The next king is Xerxes II, and he reigns just for a fraction of a year in the year 424. The next year is Sogdianus, spelled S-O-G-D-I-A-N-U-S, 424 to 423, just about a year. And then there's Darius II, 423 to 405. And then there's three Artaxerxes, Artaxerxes II, Artaxerxes III, and Artaxerxes IV. Now, Artaxerxes II goes through a little bit of turmoil, so he basically loses Egypt. So he's the king only of Persia proper. Egypt sort of breaks free and they don't come back under the Persian rule for a little while. He's from 404 to 358. Then there's Artaxerxes III, 358 to 338. And then there's Artaxerxes IV, 338 to 336. And then there is Darius the third. Now, Darius III is significant because he's the last king of Persia. And he reigns from 336 to 330, he is attacked and defeated by Alexander the Great. Now, technically, there's another king that proclaims himself to be the king of Persia after Alexander has already whooped them, but he doesn't last very long. And his, He calls himself Artaxerxes V, and he's only around for a few months. He actually is the guy that takes Darius III's life while he's on the battlefield to try to take over the throne. But he's he's captured by Alexander the Great and he's put to a horrible death. There's about three different accounts as to how he died. Some people say he was tied to two trees that were bent over and then they kind of twanged together and pulled them apart. Some people say he was crucified. Bottom line is he was put to death in some brutal way and that brings the Persian uh, Empire to a screeching halt. And Alexander the Great is now the ruler of the... Uh, The world. So that would be 330. um, 330. Now, what I would like to do in your notes, I've given you several biblical references because I want you to be thinking of this stuff that we're talking about when you're reading your Bible. So I'm going to look at uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. We'll look at seven or eight different references. What we'll do is we'll just have you work just very briefly for a few minutes in sort of half tables. So you guys can kind of take the first reference. You're the second reference, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh. And I want you to look at this reference, and I want you to try to date it using the king list that you've been given because these king's names are in some of these king's names, the ones that are started, are in our Bible. So you guys will do Ezra 1 and then Ezra 4, 4 to 5, Ezra 4, 6, Ezra 4, 7, Esther 1, 1, uh, Ezra 7, and the back table will do Nehemiah 1, 2. I'll just give you five or six minutes to look up the reference and then we'll come back together. You guys have it all figured out? Okay. Let's start with group number one. Group number one. Tell the class what the event is or situation, and help us to put a date of some sort on it. Are you the spokesman, James? <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. Okay, you just you just kind of have to put it in the Yeah. yeah. Okay. Who's your spokesman? Yeah. You're like two groups, you're like a kingdom divided. read it as the first year of King Cyrus.
1: Uh-huh.
0: thought, "Hey, this one's easy. It's the first one, so Oh, okay. So um, Yeah. So let's, okay, but it's in that period, right? Technically, it is, whoever said the 538 is correct, it's the first year of his reign after having conquered Babylon. Babylon. Yeah. But it's within that period of time, you see? So when you're reading Ezra, Ezra's recollection, Ezra is not written during that period of time. But you're reading his recollection, he's thinking about this period of time. Now what's the second reference this group? Uh the second reference was um during the period of uh Cyrus all uh from 559 mm-hmm. down uh to uh, Darius the 1. Okay. Um they were attempting to rebuild the temple. Okay. Right. And they hired uh, counselors to discourage them and to kind of uh, de- derail them. Okay. And, um, that, that period was from 559. Okay. Through uh, 486. 559 to 486. Did you guys actually go into verse 6 then, or did you stop at verse 5? No, stopped at verse 5. No, okay. So. Up until the reign of Darius, okay, so you're talking about about a twenty year period of turmoil, right just roughly say five forty to five twenty ish so about a twenty year period of turmoil okay, very good so they're 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 back they're trying to get some building off the ground it's not working out so well now how about uh, Ezra Ezra four six now this is a little bit tricky <laughs> Okay. I okay. You it. Artaxerxes, yeah. No, no. No, Artaxerxes. I you said, uh, oh yes, Aschuwarius. Yeah. Uh huh. No, you guys. are... Oh, sorry. Yours, yeah. Yours is verse six. You guys are the ones that have the the bigger challenge. So, okay, go ahead. Sorry. Okay, so what year is that then? Okay, around 486. Okay. Yeah, so the temple's already been built, and there's certain people that are writing accusations back to Persia, because Persia's still the king of the area, saying these guys down in your satrapsy are are doing stuff that you're not going to like. It's all lies, but that's basically what's happening. Okay, 4-7. Well, we uh, okay. 4. 4, so yeah. Um, and it's regarding the Jews trying to the okay. Now, here's the little note that you want to take, uh, take care to um, be aware of. Go down to verse 24. And then it says, Then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped, and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius king of Persia, which is two kings back. So, why go to an event that ends at the time of Darius, then talk about Artaxerxes, who's two kings later, and then go back? Because, verses 6 to 23 are a parentheses dealing with a specific event that took place during the reign of Artaxerxes but then the writer of Ezra goes back and continues his thinking that he ended in verse 6 which is back to the reign of Darius. So he's talking about this an event here then he hops down Chapter 4, verse 6 to 23, tells you about an event down here and then goes back and continues the discourse of Darius. Pardon? Um, Yeah, I'm just, I'm talking about though the dating of the text because... You have a reference to the, the, the reign of Asuarius. Um, or they, they have a verse 5, they, they're basically complaining from Cyrus to Darius. They skip these two mini kings that are in between. And then uh, they jump down and start talking about the reign of Xerxes. And then Artaxerxes in verse 8. And then they're back to Darius at the end. And it's because they're popping ahead and telling you more about a particular event in the future, but then they're going back and picking up where they left off, entering into chapter 5. But I'm not sure if you had a question there, Jack, but I'll, I'll make it into a question. Uh, the scenario is they're in Judah. They're trying to rebuild and some of the inhabitants don't like what's going on. So they're writing letters back to everybody's king, who is whoever the king of Persia is at the time, saying, hey, these people down here are causing trouble. You should stop them. And sometimes they're successful and sometimes they're not. Now, what you'll be interested in knowing is that the people who are causing them problems are not non-Jews. Like Sanballat. People are always not a Jew. No, he's a Jew. He's a Yahwist from Samaria. Tobiah is a Jew. His his name is Semitic. The name of his daughter Delilah is Semitic. So he's kind of like the governor of Samaria. And this is later on now under, under Nehemiah. Nehemiah is the governor of Judah. The reason why he's opposing the rebuilding of the temple is not because he worships a different god. He's a Yahwist. It's for political reasons. He views that as his territory. We know this for a fact because... And Sanballat's daughter would eventually marry one of the uh, Judean high priest's grandsons. So they were all Jews or of Jewish stock. They might have had some other ethnicities mixed in in the north. But he was opposing them for reasons other than religion. It was more for power and politics when they were trying to rebuild the wall. Yeah, so Geshem the Arab, the Arab would have been a non-Semitic person, um, the Arabs at that time had basically beat on, beat up the Edomites, so the Edomites were all over the place, they didn't have a nation, but people are migrating and there's a lot of nomads, so Geshem the Arab is, is a non-Semitic person, but Tobiah and Sanballat are, even though they carry, uh, they, they actually carry Semitic like Hebrew names and so do their children, and they're later involved in various aspects of worship. So, okay. So those are the dates. So um, where where do we leave off? Uh, Esther one one. Let's go to Esther one one. Who had Esther one one? This group back here. Okay. Um, okay. 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 So during this period of time, right? So what? Do you find this interesting at all? Like what, what's interesting about the fact that the events of Ezra are actually taking place in this period of time when the decree to go home is back here. What does that tell you about Mordecai and Esther and those Jews? They're in Persia by choice. So it's not Sometimes people read Esther as if it's still a captivity book, but it's actually several decades later. They're there by choice. The majority, the vast majority of Jews stayed in Babylon or, or migrated to Egypt. So Esther is written during a period of time when there's a group of a large group of Jews that stay in in Persia, not what is now Persia, at Susa, and they're just living their lives there. And of course all these issues arise and they're threatened with genocide and Mordecai really is the, sorry ladies, but Mordecai is the hero, not Esther. (laughs) Uh, she's told to go. I mean, it's not like she had a lot of choice in the matter in her culture. She just does what her uncle tells her to do. And he, through his, um, you know, politicking and intellect and prayer, uh, is the guy really that's responsible for rescuing the the Jews. I know that doesn't make for good teaching at Ladies', ladies Bible Studies. You, you read her, I know. Always, my wife's still mad at me. I told her this like 15 years ago, that Esther's more of the pawn in the text. That is not true. Okay, whatever. Live in your little world. Okay. Um, but this is the period of time within which Esther uh, was written. Okay? So uh Ezra chapter 7 verses 1 and 7. What do you find there? Okay. So what could we date that to then? Okay, around 458 or 59, yeah. Okay. And what what was verse 7 again? I think I didn't I give you two, or were they just? Oh, okay. Okay, so again, you think of Ezra, you almost have this. I, I sort of had this notion when I was, you know, you used to read these books that the decree went out and Ezra's on a bus and he's back to Judah, right? This is like a couple generations later. Like how many years? Mathematicians, 539 to. 458. We're talking how many almost 80 years, right? Before Ezra even shows up in Judah, right? So that's quite that's quite that's longer than the time of the exile, which is 70 years. Before so there's a long period of time of rebuilding and sort of getting people back into the land. And the biblical text tells us that. I mean, it it dates it very specifically to the reign of these kings. And this is not hearsay. We, we know when these mighty Persian kings reigned. How about Nehemiah one? Okay, so what would we put that to? 4.45. So 4.45, so about 15 years after Ezra shows up, Nehemiah shows up. So that's a Approximately 93 years, almost a century after Darius' decree before Nehemiah shows up in Judah. Very significant. This is important stuff for us to understand if we're going to read the Bible within its historical context. Now last week we talked about some of the prophets that were prophesying during this period of time. We spent quite a bit of time outlining that. Two of them are just are, are, are actually mentioned by name in Ezra chapter 5. We have Haggai and Zephaniah. And if you read their books, especially Zephaniah, basically he's, he's encouraging the people, like, return. I want more of you to come back, and God's going to bless the land, and all that kind of stuff. So when you're reading Zechariah or Haggai, think about the fact that a relatively small portion of the Jews had decided to return to Judah. Most of them had stayed in Persia, <clears throat> and he's trying to call them back. And one of the motivating factors he uses is God's blessings that will be upon them if they return to the Holy Land. But what I find amazing about the fact that so many Jews stayed in Persia is they obviously didn't feel real motivated to go back to Judah. They actually had it pretty good. They weren't living in cages. They had a lot of freedom. Men like Nehemiah had become a nobleman. He was actually the king's cupbearer, almost like you know the deputy prime minister, kind of like the equivalent of Daniel was. To Pharaoh after he got out of jail so Nehemiah had a really good job by the way he probably would have been a eunuch because that's was kind of necessary to serve in the king's court and uh, he had a you know he had a really good position there and he was appointed to become one of the governors of Judah under uh, the king so he was upper crust he wasn't some you know, Hick, He was an upper crust nobleman living in Persia, traveling back and forth at different times between Judah and Persia to represent the will and whim of the king. And he was loyal to his king. He never, at any point in time, uh, encouraged an uprising among the, the Judites against the Persian king. He encouraged them to get their act together internally, but he was always loyal to his king which is also an interesting historical uh, fact. So let's talk a little bit about the Persian Empire then from the 6th century to the 4th century. So keep in mind we're talking, the Persian Empire, we're talking when we say 6th to 4th, we're talking 500s to 300s, right? Because we count 0 to 100 as, as the 1st and then 100 to 200 as the 2nd and so forth. So Darius continues uh, after Cyrus to be a, a very capable ruler. Again, there's a couple other kings that rule in there, but they're not significant for our purposes. Cyrus does a great job. Darius does a great job. Under Darius, the kingdom is divided into several satrapsies, and the way that he maintains unity is he has traveling inspectors that he sends out to make sure that the different satraps are doing what he wants them to do, that they're not inciting rebellion, collecting taxes that he's not aware of, etc. So he does a great job in administrating the Persian Empire as a king. And at the same time, he allows a lot of local autonomy. And this was also true of the Jews in Judah. As long as they behaved, you can worship your god you can manage your own local affairs, but just make sure you're following me on the macro. As long as they're submissive ultimately to Persia, the Persian king Darius and many others after him were okay with a high degree of freedom among their, uh, not slaves, not um, you know indentured people, but among the people who were sort of part of the states that they ruled. A couple other things Darius did. He standardized the coinage of the Persian empire, so we now have... Uh, you know, a standard currency among the Persians. He also cut a channel, which was a pretty significant feat, linking the Nile to the Red Sea for purposes of commerce and trade. He was known as a king that constructed roads in order to encourage industry. And he initiated a series of legal laws and codes. And under his rule, many people believe that Persia sort of reached its peak. And by the way, um, the book that I'm primarily drawing this from is uh, entitled A History of Israel, the fourth edition, John Bright. It's actually a really, really old book, but it's been published and republished several times. And uh, I have an electronic copy of it. I don't have a paper copy of it, but it it sort of served as a, a standard textbook for several decades outlining some of this uh, the history of Persia and other aspects we've talked about in this class. So if you ever want to read up on this further, I'd recommend it. Now Xerxes, even though we know him from our reading of the Book of Esther, is actually a far less capable king than his father. In this situation, oh, Jack left. This was a father-son thing. Uh, so Xerxes is the son of Darius the First, and uh, the kingdom doesn't do quite as well uh, under him. Sometimes he Wins battles, other times he loses battles. Sometimes he tries to pick a fight with people he should be picking a fight with, like the Greeks. The Greeks, by the way, are at a point where sometimes they're doing okay. There's a lot of intellectual prowess among the Greeks during this period of time. But their big problem is they, you know, Athens as opposed to Sparta and Sparta as opposed to this city. And They're all kind of squabbling for power. But if they actually got together like they later did, they were uh, forced to be contended with. Nevertheless, sometimes he tried to attack and win, and he won. Sometimes he didn't. Ultimately, he, under his reign, the Persians were forced to withdraw from Europe. So the kingdom actually shrunk under Xerxes during the time of the person we know as Esther. After him is Artaxerxes the first. And Artaxerxes uh, also has problems during his reign. Egypt rebels against him, and he doesn't lose all of Egypt. He retains Memphis, but he loses most of southern Egypt uh, to the rebellion that that, uh, rose up there. Now, back in Canaan, as the Jews now have had 80 years or so to return, Uh, it's kind of surprising there really was not a mad dash to go home. There was a steady trickle of Jews from Babylon uh, into Canaan, kind of a steady stream, but many of them chose to stay in Babylon or go elsewhere. Now, I would like for someone to read for us Zechariah chapter 2, verse 7. And this, of course, is the word of a prophet. Inspired by God. So, really, it's God's desire for the people. And what does it say in Zechariah chapter 2, verse 7? Pardon me? Yeah, escape to Zion. Can you read the whole uh, verse? Okay. So the daughter of Babylon is clearly a reference to Persia, the offspring of Babylon. Zechariah is calling the people, come back, like, escape, you've been freed. But they're like, nah, we kind of like it here. And it's actually a powerful spiritual analogy of the contentedness of the Jewish people. When things were going well for them, even if they're outside of their homeland, they'd be taken into captivity, they didn't really see, see any real need to head back to the holy land or the Promised Land. they kind of like the word is. And by, by the way, it's a preachable point, right? Because our promised land is heaven, and this is our Babylon. And sometimes we're far more interested in staying in our Babylon than actually returning or going to the place that God has called us to. So it, it is a preachable point. But Zechariah had called the people back, and most of them stayed in Babylon. In fact, Babylon uh, remained the center of Jewish existence. And again, one of the reasons for that, jumping off of the descriptions of the occupation of men like Nehemiah, is many of them had become wealthy in Babylon and had it good. And so they just stayed and had their children and had more children and more children, and life was good. And yet Nehemiah is an example of a man who, in spite of his wealth and his nobility, decided to obey the call of the prophet and the call of God and return to the land and do what God had called him to do. Now, also back in Judah, as you might imagine, after having been taken into captivity because of their polytheism, many of the Jews were continuing to pollute their faith with polytheism. And so we know the names of at least three gods besides Yahweh that were being worshipped by the Jews in Judah Eshem-Bethel, Harem-Bethel, and Anath-Bethel. Now, these are all made-up gods. They were gods that they would have learned about in Persia. They brought those cults back into uh, Judah and tried to mix in the worship of these foreign deities with the worship of Yahweh. And again, it's a great preachable point because sometimes God punishes us for our sin, and as soon as he sort of loosens the screws a little bit, we're right back to sinning. So the very things that the Jews were guilty of doing before the exile— they pretty quickly returned to after the exile. And it shows that sequence of events, the ups and downs, the highs and lows, the spiritual commitment and devotion, followed by the spiritual depravity of the Jews throughout the Old Testament period. Very specifically, for for the lives of the Jews who were in Judah, the population at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah had increased to approximately 50,000 people. Now keep in mind, that many Jews had stayed in the land of Samaria uh, after the exile. So even at 50,000 people, we're we're not sure if all 50,000 of them came from Babylon. Several of them might have already been in in the area and been included in that total. But there was probably a population 80, 90, 100 years after the decree of only about 50,000 people living in Judah, some of the re-inhabited towns included Tekoa, Beth, Zer, Kela, and there were growing populations of Jews around Bethel and Jericho. According to Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 7, how many people lived in Jerusalem? Check it out. What does it say in Nehemiah chapter 4 verse 7? You want me to read it out loud, somebody? Go ahead, James. <laughs> ne- uh, Nehemiah 4:7. <clears throat> okay. So maybe I did write down the wrong verse. <laughs> Nehemiah 4:7. Uh, try 17. Basically, it's a text that says very few people lived in Jerusalem and there were no houses built there. So, if one of you could look that up, uh, and I'll just kind of continue to talk, and then just put up your hand and let us know where that is. It's in there because I read it today. So, the shocking thing, though, is that so, what is it? Oh seven four. okay. Okay, great, thanks. I'm going to make a note to that effect. 7-4. Okay, so, can I just borrow someone's pen? I just have markers. So it is kind of shocking, if you think about it, that they're back in the land, several decades have gone by, and nobody really cares much about living in Jerusalem. Isn't that kind of weird? This is Zion. This is like the place that the kings called the people to every year to worship. It was the it was the the location where all the songs of ascent pointed to. This was the city of David. This was Zion. This was the place where the temple had stood. And no one even wanted to buy real estate there. So it it shows the The kind of the state of decay, moral, social decay that existed in Judah even after they were released from the Babylonian exile. Now, it is true that while the Judaic vision for Zion was dead, from a human perspective, you can kind of understand that it was difficult for them. They were coming out of prosperity and security into a land where there were Ammonites and Edomites and Philistines, and Arabs and they were being pestered, not so much when they were going about their day to day life, but they were being pestered whenever they tried to do anything significant, like rebuild the temple or rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. So you kinda of, you can understand from a human perspective, it was difficult for them to be there. By the mid fifth century, they had finally begun to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem because of the persecution they received. So the fact that they were persecuted now encouraged them, well, we better start putting up some walls here because people are picking on us a lot and we don't want to get dragged back to Babylon or some other place. So they began to build the walls, but some of their buddies, their difficult neighbors, everybody has one, uh, succeeded in getting a signed order from the king of Persia that made them stop building for 20 years. And so that took place, and uh, that was kind of disappointing, but eventually things would would move forward. Now, as far as we know, the Jews in Jerusalem itself, as far as we know, did resist worshipping other cults or other gods and worshipped Yahweh alone. The Jews in the surrounding countryside were a little more loosey-goosey about their religion, Nevertheless, in the year 516, uh, the Second Temple was rebuilt, and this had a tremendous effect on reunifying the people spiritually and giving them one common place to gather and meet and worship God. But if you go to the prophet Malachi, you will discover that things were far less than perfect, because the prophet Malachi chastises them for several things, and. Uh, in chapters 2 and 3 in particular, there's a whole list of stuff. In chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 9, the priests are accused of um, not following the proper procedure. Some of them were offering sick animals in contrary, contradiction to Torah law. Uh, later in Malachi... Chapter 3, they weren't tithing. Uh, They were robbing God of the tithe. And, of course, in Malachi, they're also chastised for uh, divorce. These are all post-exile texts. And so Malachi is chastising the people. You know, you got your temple now. You're worshipping Yahweh, but you do not have your act together. These basic sort of ground zero foundational laws are not being abided by. You're not keeping covenant with your spouse, you're not sacrificing appropriately, and you're not tithing. So Malachi and other prophets continue to chastise the people of Israel. And of course they had all kinds of excuses, but there's lots of anomalies listed there. Now the next two characters we got to talk about at length are Ezra and Nehemiah. And they've already come up tonight by name, but let's let's understand a little bit about their significance. So Ezra worked from and around the year 458 onward. When you think of Ezra, you think he's there as a contemporary of Nehemiah. They don't really talk about one another. Their ministries overlapped, but Ezra's there first. And I don't know, maybe they didn't even get along. I mean, Nehemiah tends to be sort of mouthy and harsh and you know, heavy-handed, and Ezra is portrayed as a little bit more of a soft person. They also had a little bit different ministry emphasis, but they're both used by God for significant purposes. Now, Ezra, while he does, for instance, read the law aloud, really his work is more political and administrative. So that's kind of what he's dealing with. Nehemiah is dealing more with the heart and soul of the spiritual life of Israel. Again, there's overlap, and I'm just sort of speaking in generalities here. Ezra wanted to make sure they got the political and administrative issues sorted out. Nehemiah came in and he was really, even though he was a true political leader, he was a governor. uh, He's focusing more on the spiritual dimension. So he shows up. He's, He's called by God, you could say, around 445, but it probably takes him about five years before he actually shows up. Why? Well, he has responsibilities. He's a governor. So interesting thing about Nehemiah, he goes to Judah and he's the governor for about 12 years, which is longer than average. Then he has to go back and return to serve in the Persian court. But in a very unusual way, the king grants his request to come back and he serves a second term as governor. I mean, he must have just been really passionate and convincing. So he comes back and serves a second term as governor. And um, just an interesting Cult, uh, histor- just to sort of put it in your head culturally, Nehemiah would have been a contemporary of Socrates over in Athens. So the, the period of time within which Socrates was wandering the streets of Athens is about the same period of time as, as Nehemiah. Uh, Ezra reads the law at one point from the people till sun up, from sun up till sundown, and this was new for them. Many of them had never heard it. They'd been familiar with the trappings of judaism in persia but they never actually heard it read so he reads the law to them and calls them back to covenant faithfulness uh nehemiah is a little bit more of the the heavy hand he he's not afraid to crack the whip and sort of whip people into shape and get them back on track and he has the political clout to do so because he's a representative of the king of persia during this period of time during the period of uh, ezra and nehemiah uh, i mentioned to you that Darius was a good king. Uh, Xerxes was a little weaker. Coming into the reign of Artaxerxes, things were sort of on the upswing again for Persia, as the Greeks fought among amongst themselves, and they would really be safe from the Greeks for about another 100, 120 years or so, as a as a superpower. Uh, as I mentioned, Nehemiah comes down. He's a eunuch, served as a king's cupbearer. He is appointed by the king as what was known as the governor of Judah, which from, from what I understand would have been a subsection of a satrapy. And the region that he governed, you'll notice it in the biblical text with a capital B and a capital R, is the region beyond the river. So the, the local Jews probably just called it Judah, but the Persians called it beyond the river at times. He um, is opposed by Sanballat, who we know from extra-biblical records was the governor of Samaria. So Samaria was the region to the north that um, the northern kingdom inhabited. Now, it might be on this next map, which I've brought along for other purposes, but I'll just see if I can locate it here. That's pretty weak. So I'll point it out to you with my little pointer. This is Judea and Jerusalem. This is Samaria. So this is the area that Sanballat is governor of. This is the area that Nehemiah is governor of. But Sanballat wants to be governor of all of it. And so he's opposed by Sanballat, um, who I've mentioned here earlier has a um, Yahweh's name. And uh, nevertheless, in spite of all the opposition, Nehemiah's grit and his high level of morality wins out. He is not pushed back by his opponents. And this leads to the completion of the walls and the security of the nation. The sorry, I shouldn't say the nation, the the territory. He's loyal to the king, so he's secure from harm, but he's also loyal to Yahweh God, and so God blesses him. And anybody that tries to take advantage of Nehemiah is pushed back. Because of that he he had some enemies because he was t- kind of a tough cookie but he's used by god for his toughness not to allow you know the the people this vulnerable nation to sort of be pushed all over the place chapter 13 of uh of Nehemiah is important we'll just go there for a minute and you can look at verse 6 uh, Notice, by the way, that when you're flipping through the Bible, it's not in order. Like Nehemiah and Ezra should be way after Psalms and Proverbs and Psalms. Song, song. So don't read your Bible as if it's in chronological order in terms of the way the books are put together. But look at um, uh, the 13th chapter of Nehemiah, verse 6. Uh, there we read, Uh, While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. His first term as governor had ended. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time, I asked leave of the king, and came to Jerusalem, and then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. Who's Tobiah? He's one of the guys that had opposed Nehemiah uh, rebuilding the walls some years earlier. And he goes back and he finds the high priest has given this guy a room where? Uh, in, in 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 the courts of the house of God, in the temple. So Nehemiah gives the orders, cleans the chambers out, and... Uh, cleansed the t- chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the, the frankincense. So he he kicks buy out, and he sort of cleans house again. So that's one of his key functions. And the reason why this is important is because in Nehemiah, we start to see, just in a germinal way, uh, the that, that heartbeat that the Jewish people have for revolt and for spiritual purity which is going to come up time and time again in future generations. Oftentimes everybody's flatlined and then there's this guy that sort of rises above that stands in the gap on behalf of the land and calls them back to covenant faithfulness. And that's going to be a theme that you see in for many centu- centuries to come. So he's governor and uh, he throws Tobias stuff on the street, and he actually runs the high priest out of the country for allowing his granddaughter to marry Sanballat's daughter. Now you might say, well, Sanballat was a Jew. Well, he was probably more of a Samarit- Samaritan Jew. He may have been guilty of some syncretism or polytheism. Uh, he certainly wasn't a guy that was recognized in the supremacy of Zion. And if, if only for that reason, while he was a de facto Jew, Nehemiah didn't really recognize him as such because of his behavior and his lack of allegiance to to Mount Zion. So it's essentially the same as, you you might as well just go marry a Gentile. There was an unequal yoking going on there. And then Ezra, um, he of course is uh, reigning during that time too, and you can read about many of his uh, endeavors in the book of Ezra. Now from the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, so we're still talking 5th century here in the 400s, Through to the time, through to the period of about 175 BC is a period of time where we have the, the, the least amount of records or the smallest body of literature. This is a very quiet period in terms of literary sources. Historians all recognize this, that it's very difficult to know what was going on during this period of time because there's just not a lot of records being kept. Everything sort of goes quiet. And uh, the quote-unquote publishing houses are shut down. So a very scarce amount of literature from the 5th century to the 2nd, 2nd century. These are often called the silent years. You may have heard the expression from Malachi to uh, the time of Christ, the 400-year period of silence. That means that there was no major writing prophets on the scene. There were still oral prophets, but there's no major writing prophet. But from a literary perspective, these two centuries in particular are really silent. In terms of historical records, uh, after sometime after um, Nehemiah, another man by the name of Bagios in 410 becomes governor of Judah. He's one of the, the few names that we know from historical records was uh, ruling as the governor of Judah. So obviously, there's the uh, under, under the Persian king, there's a, a continuation of governorship over Judah. So there's some sort of formalized uh, administrative oversight. But there's a lot of corruption during that period of time. At one point during this uh, period of history, the priesthood became so corrupted that one man murdered his brother, who was the high priest, in order to become the high priest of Jerusalem. Now, think about that. I mean, the high priest is supposed to be representing God and offering sacrifice on behalf of the people. It became a political office, a highly politicized office, to the point that later it was sometimes bought from the Seleucid kings. The Jews of Judah and the Jews of Egypt maintained some sort of a connection. At one point, a Jewish temple that was in Egypt was torn down by some enemies, and the Jews in Egypt, that were a very large group at this point, called upon the Jews of Judah to help them. They actually sent money and resources so they could build themse- rebuild themselves a temple in Egypt. Um, In the fourth century, Persian power began to wane, and there was a series of rebellions among the different satraps, especially the, the western satraps, began to rebel against the Persian kings, and some of them tried to usurp the throne. There were several instances of political infighting and assassinations, and so by the time Darius III took the throne in 336, really Persia was on its last legs. It was highly weakened. It wasn't the, the former superpower that it, that it had been. And uh, it was kind of ripe for a takeover from Alexander the Great. We don't know too much about the day-to-day life of people in Judah during the 4th century or begin, beginning of the 3rd century. But one thing we do know, this is the period of time where the Jews and the Samaritans really began to clash. The Samaritans had become a distinct ethnic group. They were a mixture of Jews Jews and various displaced people that were brought in in the 8th century so now they've been there for several centuries now this was their turf this was their home they at one point tried to and perhaps were successful at building their own temple on mount gerizim this infuriated the jews who thought that mount zion was the only legitimate place for a temple and there was a lot of feuding and infighting with the samaritans and the so this is so when they came in or when they started to feud uh, in the 3rd and 4th centuries, so the, the uh, during that period of time is when we know there was a, just a lot of clashes between the Samaritans in the north and the Jews in the south. Another interesting thing that took place during this period of time is that the language of Aramaic overtook Hebrew. Now the Jews would have learned Aramaic when they were in Babylon, but now it became their lingua franca and more Jews would have spoke Aramaic than Hebrew, to the point that the old uh, Hebrew alphabet was discarded, and all of their literature was updated even into the Aramaic square uh, alphabet, which is like the Hebrew that we consider the Hebrew alphabet today. It's the Hebrew of the Old Testament. It's the Hebrew of the Jerusalem Post. It's the Hebrew of the signs in Israel today, but it's actually an Aramaic alphabet, not a true Hebrew alphabet. So this was all updated, and the language of Hebrew, while it was still spoken, became uh, far less common and it became increasingly reserved for religious use. So we even know that at the time of Jesus, Jesus was speaking in Aramaic uh, in his preaching and teaching ministry. And during this period of time, also, Uh, is when we have Alexander the Great coming in and conquering the Persians and the rise of Hellenism. Now, this was an interesting event. We, We all know kind of the story of Alexander, like he basically conquered the world really fast. He only ruled from 336 to 323, and he died at the tender age of 33 years of age. In Babylon as a result of sickness. So he died a, a young man. It would have been interesting to know what he would have done if he had survived uh, into his senior years. But he conquered Darius III. He then passed through Phoenicia. Where's Phoenicia? i showing you lots of maps on this, so this is just a review. Where's Phoenicia in relationship to Jude and Samaria? Think Tyre and Sidon. Here. Okay, So he comes down through Phoenicia, he comes down through Palestine, he comes down through Gaza, he goes down to Egypt, beats up the Egyptians, and really doesn't have to beat them up too much because they actually welcome him, they are delighted that someone has finally kicked out the Persians. And they, they, of, they initiate, he doesn't have to ask for it, they initiate and say, please come and be our pharaoh. So Alexander the Great is also proclaimed the pharaoh of uh, Egypt. But his unified kingdom doesn't last. As soon as he dies, it's broken up. And four of his key generals in particular each take a chunk. Now the two that are most relevant for our conversation are Seleucid and, P- and Ptolemy. So each of these guys then becomes like a, uh, a, a king uh, to his, in his own right, takes a chunk of the kingdom, and uh, what happens essentially is that the, the two kingdoms that are the most interested in Palestine are the Seleucids and the Ptolemies from these two generals that took sections of Alexander's kingdom. So they become like their own nations. So they're sort of fighting it out. And uh, Ptolemy ultimately wins Palestine. And so the Ptolemies, a Greek king, rules Palestine for approximately 100 years, for one century. And obviously different kings come and go under that uh, regime. The Jews pay them tax in exchange for peace. So they don't really bother the Jews. They're just the new governing nation of the world. or or Not of the world, but of their their, uh, former homeland. During this period of time, the Jewish population of Egypt grew dramatically to the point that come the first century AD, there's approximately one million Jews living in, in Egypt. And this, by the way, answers the question, if you've ever thought it strange, why, when Joseph uh was concerned for the life of his son Jesus, he takes off to Egypt for a few years. He wasn't down there by himself. there was a million other Jews hanging around there I mean there was probably lots of relatives and cousins and third cousins and you know former roommates from university and everything else down there that he could he could room with so you know if you have this idea that he's sort of down there all by himself no there's there's more Jews down there than there is in Judah, a very large diaspora of Jews living in Egypt now this is very fascinating because um, during this period of time, the Jews in Egypt start to speak Greek because it's part of the the broader Greek Empire. and as a result of that, what do they do? Does anybody know what's one of the most significant things that they they do? Jews? Living in Egypt, speaking Greek. Pardon me? Correct. The Septuagint is over several years, not all at once, translated. So the the entire Old Testament is translated into Greek. And this is known as the Septuagint. We still use it today. I have one in my office. Okay? Second century. Th- end of 3rd into the 2nd century BC. So in the literature it's often called the LXX meaning 70. There's some stories about 70 people translating it, but uh the LXX is is the Greek Old Testament. Now, one thing that's interesting, so this is 3rd to 2nd century BC, okay? We up until the Dead Sea Scrolls, this is the oldest form of the Old Testament that we had. So in 1946, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were first discovered, it took several several years, even a couple decades, to actually get them all back. The oldest Old Testament manuscripts that we have dated till when? You want to take a guess? Anybody? Take a stab at it? Not very long ago. 1000 A.D. Right? That's it. Now, 1946 takes us back, and suddenly we now have Hebrew Bibles predating Christ by a century or more. Find out there's been no changes, which is always encouraging. So up till 1946, there was actually, among Bible scholars, oftentimes more faith placed in the LXX, because it outdated the copies of the Hebrew Bible that we had by about 1,300 years. Right? So this is very important. And Greek is a much more precise language in terms of its tenses and uh, its, its ability to be interpreted, so it was much easier working in Greek. It's still much easier working in Greek than in the Hebrew languages because of the nature of the language itself. But that's, that's how we got the Septuagint. Because Greeks living in Alexandria and in other cities of Egypt weren't real great with their Hebrew, and so they made a Jewish copy of the Hebrew Bible. And that's called the Septuagint. 48. Yeah. yeah 1948, yeah. So the little shepherd boy throws the stone, cracks the pot, and. Starts to sell in the market in and around 1946. Okay? Um, so, just a couple other points and we'll take a break. The Seleucid Empire, which had lost to the Ptolemies, now begins to take uh, greater interest again in Palestine and they are able to take Palestine from the Ptolemies and now they're under the Seleucids. Okay, so you have the four generals that yeah. each divided up into Alexander's kingdom. Yeah. But it went on for years because you're talking about you know you had said that political one hundred quarters. Yeah. yeah, so you have so you have Alex's kingdom. It's you know, more or less quartered. This is Ptolemy. Um, this is the Seleucids. Okay, So now these become kingdoms. So it's not these guys now, but these guys, their names are given to the kingdoms that they rule. So initially, for about 100 years, Judah goes to the Ptolemies. Then the Seleucids rise up and it goes to the Seleucids. And it's going to stay with the Seleucids for quite a period of time. Now the Seleucids had the same kind of relationship as the Ptolemies, It didn't make much of a difference for the Jews. They were both friendly. If you you obey us and pay your taxes, we're going to be cool with you. But um, there's going to be a Seleucid king who's going to do something really bad very shortly. But before that, the first king that rises up uh, out of the Seleucids, that is the guy that takes Palestine, is a guy named Antiochus III, Third. The Great. You know, I don't know if he gave himself that title or not. but And they welcome him, and he's friendly and he's helpful to the Jews, and it doesn't really rock their world. But there's a problem with this. When pagans are friendly, you tend to get cozy with them. So now Judah becomes increasingly Hellenized, and there's a division, a philosophical division, among the inhabitants of Judah, Some people are becoming really cozy and friendly with Hellenism. Other people are like, no, we don't really like this. You know, it's like the tension of us living in a secular world where Christians, like where do we draw the line between our association with the things of the world and, you know, what's neutral and what's not so neutral. So there's a split that is formed in, in Judah between the Jews who have embraced Greek culture and actually are embarrassed by their own. This is key. They see the Greek culture as superior to theirs. They're kind of embarrassed to be Jews. And those who hated it. So the ones that are embarrassed, they stop worshipping Yahweh. They stop circumcising their children. Uh, those that um, uh, were pro-Greek started to bring in a lot of the Greek influences. So this is kind of weird, but they even brought in Greek games and started to celebrate you know, the, the Olympic Games. Well, back then you competed naked. Well, the Jews were ashamed that had been Greekified, were ashamed of the fact they were circumcised. So there were actually people going around that could perform surgery on you to try to make it less obvious that you were circumcised so that you could go and participate in the games naked. I'm not sure how they did that like (laughs) 2,300 years ago, but this was one of the, pardon me, the first plastic surgery, yeah. So, yeah, the, the makeover, extreme makeover. So this is the kind of stuff that was taking place. So it wasn't just sort of in people's heads, right? It wasn't just, well, you thinking this way, I'm thinking this way. This was like real obvious. And this started to create a real division between the Jews that liked the Hellenization of their country and those that did not. Okay, Let's just pause there. We'll take just a five Grab a, a punchy if you dare, and then we'll come back. Okay, so um, let's talk a little bit about the Seleucids. Okay, a key name. Many of you have probably heard this. Antiochus. Now, there's different Antiochuses. This is Antiochus the Fourth, Epiphanes. I'm not 100% sure, but I think he adopted this name from uh, one of the previous rulers of Egypt. But Antiochus Epiphanes, he reigns from 175 to 163. And he's a Seleucid, okay? So he's the Seleucid king. So that means by default he's the king of Palestine. Now... Prior to his rule, Antiochus III had picked a fight with Rome and been driven back. Antiochus III was then forced to pay a ransom and in 187 is killed trying to steal money out of someone's temple to help pay the ransom. And then fast forward, uh, Antiochus III then is succeeded by a Seleucid king called Seleucus. The fourth, who reigns for 12 years, and he's also friendly to the Jews. And then there's Antiochus the fourth, Epiphany. So this is king number three of the Seleucids that is ruling Palestine. This guy is a very important figure in theological history. He comes to power during threatening times. So his kingdom is weakened, it's being attacked from all sides, he's got all kinds of turmoil and problems. And meanwhile, in Palestine, the Jews, as we've already mentioned, are divided over Hellenism, and they're bickering among themselves. So Antiochus is going to become their arch-nemesis, but they sort of are their own worst enemies, too, because they're not sure who to worship, what to worship, how to get along. They're fighting and bickering, and yada, yada, yada. A couple uh, of key historical points. During this time, a fellow by the name of Joshua... Who, who goes by his Greek name, Jason, offers Antiochus IV money so that he can become the high priest of Jerusalem. He's like, sure, why not? So he becomes the high priest. He buys his way into the high priesthood. And he loves Hellenism. So he starts to enact Hellenistic policies. And this is where he brings in the Greek games, Greek sports. He encourages people to dress in Greek Garb. He tries to encourage people to reverse circumcision by surgery and so forth. Well, this is like shocking to the conservative Jews of Jerusalem and the surrounding area. So they're sort of really upset at him. Well, in the meanwhile, a fellow by the name of Menelaus offers Antiochus IV more money to be the high priest. So Jason is kicked out. And this new guy becomes a high priest because he's willing to pay more for it. So it gives you a picture of the political climate. Now this guy is even more Hellenized than Jason. So as a result, Antiochus inadvertently causes political strife in Jerusalem by appointing kings, or not kings, high priests, who are paying for it, who are really against the cultural backdrop and the historical backdrop and the religious backdrop of the Jews that live there for the most part. So he he's, he's not thinking well. He's obviously not aware of his subjects there, and he's making decisions that cause them to start fighting among themselves. So uh, during this period of time, Antiochus, he's, he's down in Egypt fighting, and on his way back through Palestine... It's, it's not that he necessarily is trying to pick a fight, but it's his kingdom. So he just goes into the temple and says, like, I'm just going to start taking stuff. So he starts taking some of the sacred furnishings out of the temple. You know, it, His attitude is, it's mine. But again, stupid mistake number three. He appoints Jason, he appoints Menelaus. He now takes stuff out of the Jewish temple. This is causing like a lot of angst among the Jews that are living there. And uh, in the meanwhile, Jason comes back with a bunch of his guys, and he takes up arms against Menelaus, but he ultimately loses in his run out of town. And Antiochus Epiphanes IV hears about all this and thinks, oh, they're, they're starting an insurrection. Well, not really. They're fighting among themselves because you've ruled them poorly. But what he does is he decides, well, I'm going to fix this problem. Clearly their problems are all religious, so I'm going to dilute their religion. So this is like big mistake number four. So he's also under pressure from Rome because Rome is a growing pressure. He's hearing bad reports about Jerusalem. So he decides, I'm just going to go down there and kick some butt. So he attacks Jerusalem, tears down some of its walls, and kills a bunch of people. And then he does the following things. Viewing their rebellion as religious, he says you're not allowed to celebrate any of your regular Jewish festivals anymore. You cannot keep the Sabbath. He forbids anybody from being circumcised. He destroys copies of the Torah. He erects pagan altars all through the land. He forces the people at risk of death to eat pork, and then... He introduces Zeus' worship to Yahweh's temple and sacrifices a pig on the altar. So that's the one you probably all heard of when Antiochus Epiphanes sacrifices a pig on the Jewish altar. Well, everyone just freaks, right? And this is the event that the prophet Daniel called the abomination of desolation. And so in Christian theology, then Antiochus Epiphanes becomes the Antichrist. So the Antichrist of Revelation is connected to Antiochus Epiphanes the fourth of the Seleucids. He's the guy that foreshadows in Daniel's prophecy Antichrist because everything he does is opposed to the things of God. Now, in, in, in actual fact, if you sort of crawled into his head, his intention is probably not, I'm going to one-up Yahweh. He is a polytheist. He believes in a pantheon of gods, and he wants to impose that upon the Jews for political reasons. And he wants them to keep Yahweh, but keep him in their pantheon of gods, but keep Zeus at the top. So he doesn't get it, right? He doesn't understand monotheism. He doesn't understand Jewish culture. He makes a lot of bad moves. So he basically goes on his merry way back to his capital. And this is the period now known as the Maccabean Revolt. And the Maccabean Revolt becomes an armed resistance... Uh, as a result of Antiochus Epiphanes' foolishness and blasphemy. So the Maccabean Revolt is dated from 167 to 160. But the, 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 uh, the most significant part of it is in the first three years. So here's what happens. See this word here? This is where this is going to come from. A country Jew who is a priest by the name of Matthias the Hasmonean is asked to worship a foreign god. He says no to the governor. I'm not doing it. Another Jew steps forward and says, I'll do it. He kills him, cuts him down. Him and his five boys who are like NFL football players, run off into the desert. Now, the next year, in 166, Mattathias dies in the desert, at an old age or whatever. So his third son, I believe it was, Judah, who is known as Judah Maccabeus, or Judah the Maccabean. This is where this revolt is named after. There's two books in the Apocrypha that chronicle this, first and second Maccabees, named after him. He leads a revolt against the Greeks, against the Seleucids, and he does it in the only way that a depressed people can do it that, it, that doesn't have a big army. He he wages guerrilla warfare. And it works. So he he goes around the country, beats up you know, kills any Seleucids that are there that he can overcome with his growing force. He Takes Jewish young boys, you're getting circumcised, circumcises them all on the spot. He tears down the pagan altars throughout the land, and basically devastates anybody who's loyal to Antiochus Epiphanes the fourth. Well, Antiochus Epiphanes the fourth hears about this, sends in his army, but miraculously Judas Maccabeus beats them every time, like in these like gr- uh, kind of like Hollywood type scenes where this little group holds off this huge army catches them in a pass or whatever and wipes them out so judah maccabeus then against all odds pushes antiochus epiphanes out and then antiochus epiphanes dies so then there's a change of rule and the seleucid kings are like basically what i'm not even going to bother what's the point so Judah Maccabeus then rededicates the temple, pulls down the altar that the pig was consecrated on, throws the stones to the side and says, I'm I'm not even sure what we're going to do with these. We've got to find a proper priest to tell us. So he's obviously a man of devotion. And in 164, he's eventually installed as the high priest of Jerusalem. And he's God-fearing and he's sort of on the mark, right? So the, the Jewish festival Hanukkah celebrates this. So, Hanukkah is the feast of dedication, celebrating the Maccabean defeat of the Seleucids and Antiochus Epiphanes and the rededication of the temple. That's the origin of Hanukkah. So, then from there forward, the period of the Old Testament ends on various, on the tale of struggles for independence and religious freedom. So, what then happens from the period of the Maccabees till Christ? Well, as a result of this stuff, now you're going to better understand the culture within which Jesus lived. People are like, we've got we to police this better. So you have the rise of the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin, within just a few short years, comes to life. And people become really, really, really concerned with keeping every aspect of the law. So that the Judaism of Jesus' day is extremely legalistic. As almost an overreaction to what was taking place here, the canon of Scripture begins to take shape. So now they're sort of coming up with their list. They're starting to recognize, okay, this is where the Bible's the Old Testament at the time. They wouldn't have called it that, but they're their scriptures. This is where the Old Testament stops and starts. Kind of, they'd already recognized the Torah centuries earlier, but now they start to formalize. Okay, the, the historical books, the prophets, and no more prophets are writing at this point. So this is where there's there's different conversations about what their books, holy books are going to be. There's also, this is the period of time, just a couple centuries before Christ, where synagogues start to be built. To make sure, synagogues are kind of like, you know in a large city there's like police headquarters? I don't know what you would call that. But then there's, what do they call them, precincts maybe? Okay, so precincts. So synagogues, the original purpose of synagogues, as best I understand, is they sort of function as precincts to police the law out into the countryside so no one's sort of messing around again they don't want to go back to what was taking place in the hellenization of jerusalem under under jason and some believe that this was during the period of time when their theology of angels demons and satan really developed because they now saw themselves as fighting against spiritual forces and as they began to study god's revelation they began to further develop their theology of angels, demons, and the devil. Well, the Pharisees variously function. Sometimes they're more focused on social reform. Sometimes they're more focused on religious law. But they are starting to police the people much more tightly. Um, also, uh, you may not be aware of this, but a new kingship rises up in Judah. So. The the uh, decline of the the southern kingdoms, the southern kingdom was not the end of all kings. There was a further multi-generational kingdom that rose up in Judah called the Hasmonean kingdom. And this green area, you can see Sea of Galilee in the north, Dead Sea to the south, is the area of the uh, Hasmonean kingdom. And they pretty much, again, became an independent kingdom for a period of time. And the... The way this worked is that one of Mattathias's—sometimes um, this is known as the Hasmonean dynasty—one of Mattathias's sons. So Judas is like the the, the ringleader, but his older son S- Simon, sort of in a sense, dons the mantle of of kind of a, a king of Judah. Now this was formalized because the Pharisees were opposed to the idea of a kingship, but uh, a fellow by the name of Judah. Aristobulus I was the first to officially proclaim himself the king of Judah in 104 B.C. And he reigned just for one year. Now he was from the tribe of Levi, not from the tribe of Judah, and so this infuriated the Pharisees further, but he ruled for about a year. Then after him, Alexander Johnius ruled from 103 to 76 B.C. as the king of Judah, Now, during Alexander's rule, his wife sort of co-ruled with him. So when he died, she became the queen. And uh, uh, her name was Shalome Alexandria. Her and centuries earlier, Athaliah, are the only two female uh, monarchs of Israel in Israeli history up to that point. So she becomes the queen and she rules for 10 or 11 years. Then Hieracanus II rules very briefly in the year 67. Then Aristobulus II. Notice that the Judean kings are now starting to follow the uh, idea of borrowing names, like the Persians and the Babylonians and the Assyrians before them. So he ruled from 66 to 63 BC. So this is coming. this is now coming close to the time of Christ. Then Hieracanus, who only ruled for a short period of time in 67, rules again from, um, I think it's, I'm not 100% sure on these dates because I was researching and it was a little ambiguous, but I think he rules from 62 BC, potentially um, up to somewhere around 40 or maybe in and around 40 BC. Now, during this period of time, Rome is rising up. And so in all honesty, some of these later Judean kings really become puppets of Rome. But initially, they're sort of running their own show here. But the last couple of kings in particular are are quite weak. So another king rises up, and his name is Antigonus II Mattathias, after Mattathias the Hasmonean, from which this dynasty was named. And he is the last Hasmonean king. So he rules from 40 to 37 BC. He's the last Hasmonean king and he is defeated by the house of Herod. So now, Herod the Great, the first of the Herods, uh, declares himself with Rome's approval the king of Judah and he rules from 37 till 4 BC. So he is probably the king that put a bounty on Jesus' head, because I've mentioned this to you several times before, but if it's new, um, when we were, uh, 1,500 years ago, when they were setting up the calendar that we now use, they made a mathematical error in the whole AD BC thing. So Jesus wasn't born in what we now call zero. He was born somewhere between 3 and 7 BC. And so this probably would have been the, the king that, put the bounty on Jesus' head on all the little boys in Bethlehem and the one that would have caused Joseph to flee to uh, Egypt. No. No. I'm not sure what, what his ethnicity was, but he was not from the Hasmonean dynasty. So he was declared the king of Judah, but not he was not a, from the Hasmonean dynasty. Okay. Um, now, I think that uh, one of the further Herod kings might have been tied back into to the house of Mattathias. So there might have been some intermingling there, but officially the, the dynasty of the Hasmonean, Hasmoneans come to the end with the downfall of uh, Antigonus. Okay? Now these kings, by the way, many of them are co-functioning as the high priest of judah so that pretty much brings us right up to the time of christ and um sorry no and the pharisees didn't like that but uh when I mean, the pharisees themselves weren't weren't levitical per se there might have been some levites but they didn't really view themselves as priests per se they viewed themselves as constables and depending on the generation or the time sometimes sometimes the pharisees like at the time of Christ were very much focused on religious law but there were generations before that were focused more on social reform so it kind of there was and some of them were focused more on political reform so this the the role of the sanhedrin sort of ebbed and flowed sometimes political sometimes more social definitely at the time of Christ highly religious but i think this history is very interesting because when you see how kind of cash and lax the people were coming back into Judah and how for several centuries it caused all kinds of problems and you have this huge event with Antiochus Epiphanes basically devastating their religion you understand much better why there was so much religious legalism coming into the time of Christ as a reaction to what they'd experienced in their history and one other interesting point is that uh, the fact that the the previous kings of Judah, like just you know, a century and a, less than a century and a half before Christ, were not Judites, um, would would make one think that the Pharisees, when they saw Christ and Christ proclaimed himself spiritually the King of Judah and was from the line of David? Clap their hands and embrace him, but the spiritual blinders were on, and they rejected him too. So the very thing that they kind of got upset with earlier on, when their complaint was solved in Christ, they rejected him too. So it just shows the spiritual blindness because Christ qualified, and the idea of kingship wasn't new to them. I mean, they it was there was only one king before Christ's birth that was not Jewish. So it wasn't like it'd been five six hundred years before they had a king politically uh one would think that it would have made a lot of sense for the Sanhedrin to actually accept Christ and claim him as king and even if it was for the purpose of propping him up to their own ends politically it made it would have made more sense for them to accept him than reject him. but the only explanation is that their spiritual blinders were on, and he was offending the laws that they were trying to maintain because they'd lost sight of the purpose and he was trying to call them back to the purpose of the laws that they were trying to maintain. So there's a whole dynamic there that's kind of interesting to think about, about Christ's claims and his rejection against the backdrop of what they'd experienced as a kingdom, as a nation. Yeah. That would have been everything. And... Notice it's divide I noticed I actually thought this would show up a little better, but there's actually regions. This is um Samaria, Judea, Udemia, Perea, uh Eturia, and then these are ones outside. So these were all like little they weren't from the Jews, they were names given to them by the Seleucids or the Ptolemies. They were little areas that different governors would have been responsible for, but the Hasmoneans took Took one, two, three, four, you know, five or six different governorships and reunited it under one kingdom for for a few generations. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Any uh, any further comments or uh, or questions? Okay. Well. Uh, Enjoy your evening. Thanks for coming. Thanks for everybody who set up the snacks and brought the food and all that kind of stuff. It's appreciated.